Isaiah chapter 65, here's where we are. Um, we are in a section, our last two sermons in the book of Isaiah. Two more, this week and next week. And then we're done with Isaiah. People have been asking, what are we going to do next? We're going to do 1 John. So we're going to be getting into 1 John after uh, the book of Isaiah. We'll be jumping into the New Testament. Uh, that's the, uh, the plan. That's, that's what we've been doing for a long time uh, here at Hope. We go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So that's where we are. Uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 65. So uh, let me tell you where we are. This is a long passage of Scripture in, the, in the final, one of the final chapters. And we talk about God coming with open arms. Uh, we hear about God coming to His people with open arms saying, Here I am. Here I am. Come to me. And then he says, but they are rebellious. They are rebellious people who do not want uh, to come to me. And then we see about God's judgment upon those who will not trust him, those who go their own way. Uh, and then we fi- you know, finish with this last section about the new heavens and new earth, where really John, the Apostle John, in his book of Revelation, is probably borrowing a lot of what he's getting from the book of Isaiah. Whether it's Isaiah 54 or Isaiah 65, he's borrowing a language that the Jewish people have known about for, for years and years. Now, in the midst of Isaiah chapter 63 and 64, uh, we see that the people are praying out to God. In Isaiah 64, it even says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Lord, would you show up in a mighty way? Our world is broken. We're broken. Would you show up and would you bring healing? Judgment to those who reject you, but Father, would you bring comfort to your people? And God responds in Isaiah 65 and 66. These are the word of the Lord speaking to the prophet Isaiah in response to the prayer that the people would be making. So, I'm just going to read section by section today. We're going to do it a little bit different today. And part of the time, part of the reason I do that is just to throw you off. Keep you on your toes, right? So you don't get, you know... Um, bored, right? So, um, I do have a habit of putting small children to sleep during sermons, I know. Um, But here we are. We're going to look at the first seven verses, and this is really speaking with regard to God's um, patience uh, and the pursuit of God, the pursuit and patience of God. So, uh, you may stay seated as I read through this, okay? 65 verses 1 through 7. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. They are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they have made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Okay, so this is where we find the Lord. Now, the pursuit and patience of God. When you look at verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, essentially God is opening up his arms and he is saying, I I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. 
And he says, here I am. Now, that, that reference there, here I am, here I am, it's almost like uh, when you're lining up to be uh, picking teams in, in you know, maybe elementary school gym, and you're lining up to pick teams, and you're picking teams for kickball, and you're starting to, people are picking, and you're like, here I am, here I am, pick me, I, I can play, I can play, I can play. And essentially, God is humbling himself, saying, here I am, through the works of creation, to the way that I've sent prophets, to the way that I've revealed myself in the Word, I'm saying, here I am. The call of the gospel is open to everyone. Here I am. Come. Now, the Apostle Paul uses this language in Romans chapter 10. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Uh, We'll see where he uses this. Romans chapter 10, he specifically is quoting this um, in in verses, uh, where am I? Uh, Romans 10, it's verse 20 and 21. But the context for this is talking about the call of those who hear the name of the Lord, who hear the name of Jesus and would be called into the family of God. In 10, verse 14 and following, it says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, and this is where he's quoting, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient disobedient and contrary people. Now, what Paul is saying is that the offer of the gospel is out there. And the Lord welcomes into his presence, into his family, into forgiveness and reconciliation, all those who would come. I mean, we, we hear about that in Isaiah chapter 55. I mean, I, I preached on that several weeks ago. Um, and where Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He goes, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why are you doing these things? And, and, and in Isaiah 65, it says, I was ready to be sought. All you have to do is turn to me. I said, here I am, here I am. Please turn and obey. But the heart of the people is this. He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. It's almost as if Jesus is referring to something similar when he gives us the parable of the prodigal son. Where the the father is open-armed towards his younger, disobedient, rebellious son. He said, I spread out all the day to a rebellious people. What does that mean, that a rebellious people? Uh, Let me read a quote from Ray Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah. It says, um, the word means uh, stubborn, rigid, never satisfied. It's the opposite of the contrite and lowly spirit of 5715. We see this. um, It's what Paul saw in his day. God reaching out to his covenanted people again and again through the prophets, for example, but supremely through Christ. But he couldn't get through to them. Why? 
the people he had loved so much just wouldn't listen. So here's the irony. The people with the most exposure, and this is the irony, right? The people with the most exposure and the best opportunity rejected Jesus Christ. While the people on the outside, with all the disadvantages, loved him. The scripture says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He goes on to say this, and this, is, this, this struck me. He says, spirituality does not run along bloodlines. Our children, and he's speaking about the children of the church, the children within our halls, need more than exposure to the gospel. They don't need to just come to the church, but rather they need the Holy Spirit given miracle of responsiveness to the gospel. And by nature, they are disinclined to it, as we all are. Do you realize that every generation of the church is about 20 years away from apostasy, apart from the reviving mercies of God? We need Him that much, again and again, with wave after wave of grace restoring us, every generation afresh. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You know, what Ray Ortland is referring to and, and what Romans chapter 10 is referring to is that the people with the most exposure, meaning the Jewish people, rejected Jesus. And I think that we also have to be careful in the midst of our own church that when we bring our children into the church that we don't presume that they will follow Jesus just because they come with us to church, right? But rather we need to pray for them and exhort them that they're sinners in need of salvation and that they need to bend their knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of their life. Like, I never want children who grow up in the church to presume grace, right? To presume that I'm good. I went to church my whole life, and I'm good. I don't need to worry about this. But I want them to profess and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Look at what he says regarding in Isaiah 65. It says, you know, people who uh, are rebellious, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Essentially, what they're saying there is that um, I have come with open arms to the people of God, and yet they would rather make up in their minds the way they want to worship me rather than worshiping me the way that I have prescribed and asked to be worshiped in my word. You know, so so people, some people will come and say, well, how do we know what's proper worship? How do we know what we should do and what we shouldn't do? You know, we actually call it um, something called the regulative principle of worship. And you're like, oh, what's the regulative principle of worship, right? It's that the Word of God regulates what we are called to do within worship, right? So because of that, like, we don't have any fog machines or, you know, all those kind of things that are going on, but rather we want the Word of God to dictate how we do worship as we proclaim the Word, as we pray, as we take communion, all of those things. We want to be regulated by the Word of God. But notice what he says in verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. He says, this is what's going on in the people. They walk in a way that is not good. A people who provoke me to my face continually. This is a people who are like, Lord, we don't care what your Word says. We're going to worship you the way we want to regardless of what your word says. How do they do that? They sacrifice in gardens and make offerings on bricks. Now, we might look at that and go, that doesn't seem so bad, does it? And yet the Lord's word forbids anyone to be making an altar 
of bricks. Rather, it's uncut stones. And so what people are doing is they're saying, you know what? This looks prettier. I'm going to do it this way. And you know what? I'm going to do it in my garden. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. As a matter of fact, I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to eat a lot of bacon. I'm going to eat bacon on the back of my uh, patio with my fire pit, and that's how I worship God. You, you heard anything like this similar? I mean, to today? They're like, I, I tell you what, I live in one of the most beautiful places in all of Smithfield, right in the middle of Windsor Castle, and I will tell you that there are people who will show up right now about 1020, and they're, they're saying, this is my worship right here. I am in the midst of Windsor Castle, and I am in the midst of worship. And I will tell them that certainly creation sings of the providence and the good creation of the Lord, and yet they are not walking the way that the Lord wants them to walk. They are walking in the ways of foolishness. And they are essentially a bunch of bacon-eating, you know, altar-making, you know, selfish people who want to just do what they sell. And, and really what they say is, I don't want you to come to me and tell me that your way of worship from the Word of God is the way to go. Matter of fact, in verse 5, they say, Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Now, this is what this is saying. I'm a spiritual person. Leave me alone. Have you ever heard that? You're like, I don't want to get caught up in you know, religion and denominations and church buildings. I just want to do um, God my way, right? Well, there, there's some Old Testament people who do it their way, and they you know, give strange fire, and they're burned, you know, burned up. And, but, but I tell you what, we're in a culture today that actually says, I want to do things the way I want to do it, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't want the Word of God, the law of God, the ordinances of God, the wisdom of God to get in the way of me doing what I want to do. We see that, right? Matter of fact, um, the Lord says, but I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together. Now, I don't believe, uh, because Scripture says this, that we are being punished for our father's sins, but rather this is a reference to the, the sins of the fathers, you know, creating ruts for the children. And here's what I mean by that. When someone does not go, uh, does not join a church, is not a member of a church, does not attend a church, their children oftentimes do not do the same thing that they do. And what we find is that we, we create, and parents create, ruts in the roadway for their children. And essentially what they're saying is, you're not being punished for your, the sins of your father, but rather we see that the sins of your father are being visited upon you because you're just following in line with what your father and grandparents and everybody else did. And it takes a work of grace, a work of, of Christ, to bring us out of those ruts. So, in verse 65, uh, verse 8, here's what we find. So, if that's the pursuit and patience of the Lord, uh, we also see this. We see the punishment of God, but we also see a remnant will emerge from this rebellious people. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, Thus says the Lord, I will pay you for your deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. Now, that reference regarding the new wine is this. In the ancient world, when a vineyard would cut down the grapes, there would be some grapes that are good and some grapes that are bad. And they're saying, don't get rid of all the grapes because there are good grapes found within the bad grapes. 
And essentially what Isaiah is saying is that in the midst of the people of God, there will always be a remnant who will be faithful to my ways. That's just what he's saying. And my servants shall dwell there. In verse 10, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks. In the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down. Now this is promise. This is a good thing. They're saying, you know, Sharon, which is a beautiful place in Achor, they're they're basically saying like from the north to the south, from the east to the west, we will find pasture for our flocks, a place for our herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, this is where he puts them over his knee. But for you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, and the holy mountain being Zion, it's Jerusalem, the place where they are called to worship, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Now, essentially, uh, that word there is this, that that idea of um, a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Um, You could also think of that, that who hold dinners for lady luck and throw cocktail parties for Sir Fate. Um, That is Eugene Peterson's message. Essentially, it's saying, you know, you try to figure out the world by going to the Zodiac column you know, in the paper. Let me look at my horoscope. Let me consult medians, mediums and, and, and people who will tell me what the future is. You know, rather than pursuing and searching from the Lord within His Word, they are pursuing the future and trying to manipulate the future based upon fortune and destiny. Essentially, He's saying, you have forsaken me. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. There's judgment there. There's judgment there in the midst of this. And even, you know, as we confessed our faith today in the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, it says, um, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. How can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? And the answer is God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. And that other is none other than Jesus. You see, every sin you ever commit is going to be punished, either by you or by Jesus. He is our substitute. Now, as he continues to say these things, and I, I want to get to the good news, okay? I want to, I'm going to get to it, but I don't want to skip over it completely. Um, in verse 13, there's, there's this, this juxtaposition between those who follow the Lord and those who forsake the Lord. But again, we're still sort of in this punishment of God. Uh, it might be, maybe I should say, punishment and provision of the Lord. Because this is what you find in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and are forbidden from my eyes. So, so there's the juxtaposition. I mean, it's, it's pretty stark, right? I mean, the question before us is, you know, would you rather 
Eat or be hungry. Drink or be thirsty. Rejoice or be put to shame. Would you rather have gladness of heart or pain of heart and wail for the breaking of spirit? What I found, though, is the reality of trusting and believing in Jesus is what gives us this satisfaction that the Beatitudes say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. I mean, matter of fact, let's just read through them. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, I mean, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that he speaks about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus, and he opened his mouth and taught them and said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The fulfillment of all those blessedness and the idea of the kingdom of heaven and comfort and inheriting the earth and the righteousness and and the, the satisfaction and the mercy and to see God and be called sons of God and great will be our reward. That's all found in the person of Jesus. I was, uh, I was called, um, this, this week I have uh, my annual tour coming up uh, for the Air Force, so next time you see me, I won't have a, a beard. Uh, that's how you know I've been on base, because I have to shave. Um, and uh, I got a call yesterday and, um, from a chaplain. He said, hey, Chaplain Boomer, I know you're coming in. Hey, I want you to run point. We just had a, a member uh, commit suicide uh, within the ACC family. You know, it's an active duty member. Um, and... And we see this, right? We see this in the midst of the world, within the military. Um, and there's anguish of heart and there's, there's hopelessness. And that's what takes over oftentimes in the midst of suicide. A hopelessness. A despair. A grief that they just, it's overwhelming. And what's I, ironic is that we actually have words of life to give. And yet the world says, don't say his name. Don't say the name of Jesus. Because he's controversial. But the name of Jesus, the gospel according to Christ, is what gives us hope and life. And even in times of darkness, we can rest secure. And when the waves of this world come upon us, and the the trials and the pain and the suffering. What is the rock upon which we build our, our house? What is the sure and steady hope that we have? What is the anchor of our soul? It is the name of Jesus. We need to cling to Him. The Gospel call goes out. Now, my prayer this week is that I would, I would have words of comfort um, for a family that has lost a husband and a father and doesn't know what to even say or do. But the answer is Jesus. 
the hope that we have is in something greater than ourselves. It's in a person. Now, when we think about this idea, this gladness of heart that comes from verse 14, Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart. It, then we transition. We transition to this idea of the preservation and joy of God and His people. I want you to see this, family of God, because this is the beauty of, of what we see. In verse 17, it says, For behold, I create... I'm just going to read it all the way through, then I'll come back to it, okay? And just hear the, the promises here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold... I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There should be something when we read that in Isaiah 65 that turns the corners of our mouth upward. Where we go, I long for that. Now, let's, let's see, I mean, as we look at this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And think about this. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That is an astounding statement. So think about this. This new perspective, when we think about Revelation 21, again, that that the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. All the pain, all the suffering, all the broken promises, all of the friction that you have, they will not be remembered or come into your mind. As a matter of fact, um, uh, John Calvin says this with regard to this particular verse. He says, he likens it to when the sun, uh, the sun outside, the sun, when it is risen, deprives even the stars of their brightness. He's saying all the stars that you see, but when the sun comes up, you can't see any stars anymore. You only see the sun. And so all of those things that were big deals in your life, great sources of your consternation, they will be extinguished because you will be in the Father's presence and the glory of the Father will extinguish even the stars. You know, Samuel um, Rutherford um, says this, the Lamb and all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Samuel Rutherford said, past sins and pains will be put out of your mind forever. Think about that. That the past sins and pains of this life that you have endured you will not even remember them. And in verse 18 and 19, what we find is this idea of joy three times. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. So there's this call to being glad and rejoicing in the perfection of the consummated kingdom that Jesus brings in and ushers in. 
Be glad and rejoice forever. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. This new Jerusalem that comes out out of heaven, it will be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Not only is there a call to the people of God to rejoice, but the Lord God of heaven says, but I will rejoice in this new Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I mean, I think about this in the midst of you know, Ukrainian people who are fleeing their country and seeking refuge. They're like hoping in the promises of God. There are six different ways that verses 20 through 25 speak to us about where we live today and the hope that we have in Christ. The first, let me go through, is this. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. There's nothing sadder uh, than to see a a family who has to um, bury an infant or a child. There's great sadness. And there's great distress and wailing and moaning. and, And the new heavens say, you know, that type of sadness, that type of... Um, tragedy and suffering and pain. I think that what, what's being referred to here is not so much like to think about the new heavens and new earth and like having children, but it's saying that the, the pain and the suffering and the tragedy that we see here on earth will be taken away. An infant who lives but a few days, or, and think about this one, I think about this one in the midst of people who have Alzheimer's, okay? People who lose their ability to think, an old man who does not fill out his days. What does that mean? It means, and we've seen people who because of the ravages of sin and Alzheimer's and, and, and dementia, that they're still living, but they're not filling out their days. We would call it quality of life and the, and the destruction of the quality of their life. They're living, but they're struggling. And the promise is the tragedy and the suffering and the pain will no longer be there. We long for that. So the first one is that you know, this longevity in years, it's a picture of the deliverance of what an early death, and it takes away the tragedy, suffering, and pain. But the second one is found in verse 21 and 22. Here's what it says. It's, it's the issue of insecurity. We live in a world that we, where we find great insecurity around us. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. Praise the Lord, we won't pay taxes in heaven. So when you work hard, they're not taking 15, 20, 30%. You know, like it's, I don't know about you guys, I hate doing my taxes. I was sitting down to try to figure out all my taxes yesterday. And I'm not even trying to figure it out. I'm just trying to figure out all the receipts to give to the CPA. And I'm glad to just pay him money to figure out so I don't have to go to jail. Right? I'd rather hit my big, you know, thumb, or I'd rather hit both thumbs with a ball peen hammer than go through my taxes, right? Like, it's just miserable. And this is what it's saying, is that when you build a house, you live in it. When you plant, you'll eat it. When nobody else is going to be in your house, you know, um, Little Red Riding Hood will not be a story. You know, this is what we see. They shall plant, they shall not plant, and another eat. That there's this security. Security. We live in a world that is very insecure. And what happens in heaven is there will be eternal security. So not only there will there'll be a, you know, just doing away with tragedy and pain. Not only will we be firmly secure, but look at, um, as we go on, it says, for the days of the trees, uh, for like the days of a tree, I'm in 22, the second part, 
For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now what does that mean? It means that you will actually be joyful in the midst of the work of your hands. That that the toil and the labor and the frustration will be over with regard to working. You will have joy in the midst of working. Now some of you have joy now, partial anyway. You know, if, if your job is 51% good and 49% bad, you're in a good place, right? In terms of your job. But there's not complete joy in all your jobs, right? Like there's frustration. There's consternation in the midst of your jobs. But the promise that we see in Isaiah 65 is there will actually be joy, that you will long enjoy the work of your hands. Fourth one. Anxiety-free living. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. I know, and I think this is referring to, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. There are, you know, some people today, I mean, I've heard this among uh, people who are of childbearing years. How can I bring a child into this messed up world? How can I allow a child to actually be brought into a world that is ravaged by sin. And that's, you know what, you know what that's coming from? That's coming from fear and anxiety. And no longer will children bring, be brought up who children for calamity, or children who will have to go to war, or children that will die early, or children that will you know, leave us and forsake us or forsake the way of the Lord. But we will actually live in anxiety-free living. Can you imagine what it will be like in heaven to have no anxiety? None. You won't worry about anything. The um, fifth one. Look at verse 24. It says, Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. I mean, that refers to the answered prayers, but also the intimate communion with the Father. We will be so attached to our Father in heaven through Jesus the Son that there will be this intimate communion that we will enjoy with Him. That before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So not only you know, do we have tragedy set aside, not only will we be secure, not only will we be joyful in our work, Not only will we be anxiety-free in the midst of our lives, but we will also experience intimate communion with the Father. And then the last one, it says this, that the whole world will be reconciled. There will be a harmony in nature. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Now, dust shall be the serpent's food. That's basically a reference to the the garden in Genesis 3 where the serpent is destroyed by the offspring of Eve, the one who would come to save them, that is Jesus. But the wolf and the lamb shall grace together, the the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. We see that everything, the whole world order will be turned upside down. You know, that's, that's the beauty of this. So, Those six ways I see that this new heaven and this new earth will occur. The gladness of heart, the joy of Christ of being found. But boy, wouldn't it be great to never have to be anxious again? Never. 
you trust and believe in Jesus, we long for the day when He will consummate His kingdom. And all of those things will be true. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would make much of Jesus. That we would love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we would pursue You with great affection. Father, save us from ourselves. Father, help us to not be a rebellious people who turn away from You. But Father, help us to be a teachable people who long to be near You, who love You. Father, help us not to be stiff-necked, who follow our own devices, who scoff at You and think that we can just do it our own way. But Father, help us to submit to You and to Your Word. And Father, bring joy and gladness even here today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.